Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red, joined as always by Nizar Hassan, although uh, we're not together this week, Nizar. Yeah, the corona, man, coronavirus sucks. <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, as people might be able to tell throughout this podcast, there's a storm going on right now in Beirut, so our internet connection as well is a little bit spotty, so if we sort of phase in and out a little bit, please bear with us. Uh, it's just because the, the this is what we have to deal with. Uh, we are now under lockdown here in Lebanon for coronavirus, uh, which means all of us is in our own separate houses and we are connecting over the internet, which is not as good when there is a storm outside. Uh, so please bear with us because this week we have a very, very exciting episode for you all. We have as a guest, Mike Azar, a financial professional and a nerd who has been commenting on the financial crisis uh, for the past year or so. And we're going to be talking about the audit of BDL, the forensic audit of BDL. Mike, welcome to the show. So good to have you. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, let's just jump right into it. Uh, before we get to the forensic audit, we just have a few things to talk about. News that happened over the past week. Obviously, we are on lockdown again due to coronavirus, the second full lockdown here in Lebanon. Uh, this one started uh, just yesterday on Saturday. We're recording this Sunday. It's supposed to last for two weeks, uh, but that could be extended, uh, officials have, have said. Uh, we are under a curfew from 5 p.m. until 5 a.m. It's a very strict curfew, at least on paper. Uh, I don't I don't know if it's exactly being enforced as much or people are abiding by it uh, entirely. A, a lot of people probably can't abide by it. Uh, they have to go out uh, in order to make money, in order to feed their families. But the, this is, at least in theory, those of us who can you know, abide by the curfew and abide by the lockdown. Uh, we are uh, obviously the situation with coronavirus is bad right now. This past week, the total number of cases, the cumulative number since the beginning of the crisis uh, has crossed 100,000 here uh, in Lebanon. Uh, in this past week, uh, we saw we, we didn't have the record numbers of the week before, but we still had very, very high numbers uh, of testing. The information ministry tells us that about 45,000 active cases are in the country, uh, but we have the test positivity numbers here. Local test positivity has been about 15% over the past two weeks, according to Sarah Chang, which means that there is not enough testing. The, the numbers, the test positivity, the local test positivity should not be this high. And if there isn't enough testing, that means probably cases are going undetected. There's undetected spread most likely happening. So that 45,000 active cases number, maybe that's a bit higher just because we don't know. There hasn't been the adequate testing put in place to do this. And speaking of inadequacies as well, the other thing that we're really keeping an eye on right now is hospital capacity at, at how full hospitals are. Uh, according to the World Health Organization's latest information, uh, th this was a report that came out on Saturday for Friday night. Uh, they said that 71% of, of regular COVID beds were full and 82.5% of ICU beds were full. There are 372 ICU beds in the country, according to the World Health Organization. And it's basically four out of five ICU beds are full right now. 
Uh, we got some good news this week. Apparently, Riyad Saleme has the the governor of the central bank has written a letter to Slim Sphere saying that lira cash lira withdrawal limits for uh, for the purpose of medical supplies, pharmaceuticals, things of that nature. Those limits are going to be eased by the central bank. We know that's been a really huge problem. Private hospitals in particular have been very, very vocal about how this is harming them and affecting their ability to care for their patients. Uh, of course, we've been over this issue uh, before uh, in last week's episode, uh, so we won't go deep into it now. But it is a good sign that apparently the central bank is giving way a bit on this issue. Uh, although weirdly, they uh, in, in Salame's letter, he also noted that withdrawal limits, maybe there'd be an exception as well for the regi, uh, the tobacco regi, uh, which is the state-owned monopoly. So I think that's sort of a weird carve out there, but it's also in there. Uh, also this week, we we theoretically had cabinet formation still happening. Not a whole lot's going on there, though. Uh, we had uh, an envoy from the French president. Patrick Durrell came to town at the end of this week, uh, and he met with a, a bunch of people, like basically all of the top leaders of the country, to try to get this French initi initiative back on track. Uh, reportedly, he brokered a phone call between Hariri and Basile, uh, but other than that, we're sort of still in this standstill. It's been 25 days as of Monday since Hariri was designated. Uh, now, Keep in mind that Mustafa Adib, the last person to be designated prime minister before Hariri, threw in the towel after 26 days. So we're 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 getting to this place where, well, is Hariri going to continue? Of course, uh, we we think he will. He's not going to back down like Mustafa Adib did. But it's been now 98 days without a government, despite all of the numerous crises that the country is facing right now. So. It it really does feel like we're sort of still in the standstill, sort of like we were, you know, for much of 2018 and the beginning of 2019 when there was this huge fight over the cabinet post-elections. And it seems very strange now because the situation is so much worse. And so it, it it's become so much clearer how, you know, dangerous the situation has become. But it seems as though the political, the Zouama are not... Are, are are not acting really any more with any more urgency than than they were two years ago. Yeah, and one of one thing about this is that you know we've been hearing a lot about how cabinet formation has been postponed and delayed until the U.S. elections happen, and we know who's the next president. Um, so now we know who's the next president, and how does that help us? You know, um, it's quick. It, I think it was. Um, it's quite a distraction to be used uh, continuously as, a, as an excuse for cabinet formation delays because uh, were they were, was anyone expecting the foreign policy of Joe Biden administration to be formulated and imposed uh, so quickly, you know, within weeks or a couple of months so that we know how it will be translated and how it will help us form a cabinet? Yeah, I think it was a, it was a distraction of some kind and I have no idea what the politicians have in mind in terms of a timeline. I can't see um, the, the the logic behind uh, this tolerance to to delay and more delay. You know, is there a factor that we are, I'm, I'm not seeing that, you know, they're waiting on? I have no idea. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't think that was very convincing either, this waiting for the U.S. election, because it's going to take a year before the Biden administration even gets around to Lebanon, uh, maybe even longer. 
I mean, I think if you just look at kind of the domestic political considerations and the struggle for, you know, power domestically and what concessions each side will have to give, that's enough to explain why they haven't uh, formed a government yet. You know, no side is willing to be the first to concede. Uh, everything is existential here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and the other big issue, sort of on the ground issue, is still the fallout from the huge explosion at the port back in August. This past week, we've seen really no movement uh, as far as accountability goes. However, the families of victims are still, you know, pushing to see more accountability. And, and also they pushed this week to uh, have those who died in the blast be considered, you know, sort of at the, at the same level as uh, soldiers who die in the line of duty. There has been, you know, some compensation for these families, but, but not a whole lot. The, the Higher Relief Committee issued checks for 30 million lira to these families, or at least to the families who applied, which, I mean, that, that's only about $20,000 according to the official exchange rate, which is inaccessible to basically any private citizen today. But now, if you, if you look at what it is on the, on the market, it's only about $4,000. Some families didn't have bank accounts, so they couldn't cash these checks. Banks are being very, very stringent and very strict about allowing people to open new accounts. Uh, I, I, I know, for instance, I went uh, into my local bank med branch uh, a few weeks back and asked them about opening a dollar account. And they said, you need to have $50,000 just to open one, which <laughs> I, and I, I don't have that kind of money uh, laying around, you know, a fresh dollar account. Uh, I, I, I just asked for dollars actually. Oh, okay. So I, d I don't know if they wanted 50,000 fresh dollars or not. It doesn't <laughs> really matter though, because I don't have either. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, you're going to you're gonna need to start selling ads on this podcast. <laughs> uh, open yeah does anybody want to buy an ad for fifty thousand dollars uh <laughs> uh no but just to, just to give you an idea yeah the, the banks are being very very stringent they're they're not really letting people open new bank accounts so these these families of people who died in the port blast you know if they didn't already have a bank account they can't open a new one uh in a lot of cases and it means they can't cash their checks. And for the ones who do have bank accounts, uh, there are all these withdrawal limits all of a sudden, which means they don't have the same access to their money. Maybe they theoretically have it on paper or as a, an entry in the computer, but actually getting that money and being able to use it is another question. Yeah, I just want to say how much of a pain in the ass is the new are the new uh, restrictions on withdrawals? Because if you want to make any big payment, anything that is more than you know one or two million liras, now you have a big problem because you have a limit on your uh, USD to uh, like two LBP on the three thousand nine hundred rate, and you have a limit on the on the LBP accounts. So sometimes you reach a point, which was the the case for me. Uh, a couple of days ago, I needed to make a bit of a large payment and rent and many things, and I just couldn't. You know, I was telling people, you know, I'll give it to you maybe next week when I can when I can withdraw it from the bank. So, after they did all of this, all of this thing to to render the dollar completely almost meaningless or half of its own value, now they're telling you you can't withdraw from that at half value. 
it's really just humiliating the situations that people are put in, especially people who have small businesses and have to do like daily business transactions, transactions, etc. Yeah, and I mean, if if businesses accepted bank transfers or checks, you know, it could be fine for most people, but they don't. You know, they they only want cash. And on the other hand, you can't get cash to pay them. So now you have to pay a big premium for Lebanese Lira banknotes. You know, my rent, um, if I pay cash, there's a price for the rent. And if I want to pay with a bank transfer, a check, even in Lira, I have to pay a a, a 15% premium. Just insane. It's so hard to price anything in this country now. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, it it speaks to... The level of fi- yeah, of the of collapse within the financial sector. I, I mean, we have these banks; they're still they still exist. You walk down the street, at least before lockdown, they're still open. I, I think actually, no, they're they're still open even during lockdown. They're still operational. You can still check your balance online if you have the online thing set up. But as far as doing the things that banks are supposed to do. They don't really do that anymore, or they don't do that with any sort of ease. It's like we have these zombie banks sitting around. They're they're still there. The lights are still on, but they're not actually doing providing the financial services that banks are supposed to do. It's a zombie, uh, a zombie sector right now. Yeah, and it'll stay that way so long as all we have are these poorly thought out piecemeal solutions that never really get to the heart of the problem. And you're gonna have all of these unintended consequences like we're seeing. And every time there's a circular out um, in the weeks following it, there's all these unintended consequences. And then they either have to undo the circular or do a new Mm -hmm. one, or people just have to live with it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. There's no process Uh, here for studying policy and social and economic impact of decisions that are made. It's just done by a handful of people in a room, and then you know whatever happens happens. Yeah, absolutely. And we're, we'll we'll get a little bit more into this in just a second. I just want to take one quick detour and note that maritime border talks did happen again this week. Uh, negotiators met on Wednesday. Reports going into this reports had it that basically people were going to take these maximalist positions again. We don't really know what happened. The, the U.S. and UN came out afterwards saying that the talks were productive. Uh, and negotiators are set to meet again uh, on December 2nd, but we don't really know what the status is or how things are going. Hassan Asrallah, uh, the Secretary General of Hezbollah, uh, gave a speech this past week in which he basically said, you know, it's, it's okay that these technical talks are taking place. It is up to the Lebanese state to decide what its borders are. So it's sort of like, uh, back in 2000, when they were deciding the blue line uh, on the land, uh, and and that uh, Hezbollah has you know trust in Michel Aoun, uh, the president, and and in the Lebanese state to decide its own borders, because there had been a lot of questions, you know, whether Hezbollah thought that you know this was sort of a step towards normalization. Nasrallah said, no, 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 don't worry about that. We don't view it as a step towards normalization or peace with Israel or anything like that basically giving the green light for these talks to continue publicly. Uh, So turning back to the financial side of things, this week we saw this sort of personal war of words break out between two politicians who are both sort of FPM. We have Ibrahim Kanan, a a high-ranking FPM official, member of parliament, uh, the head of the uh, finance and budget committee in parliament, 
Uh, he, he's been there since you know 2009 was when he became head of the committee. Uh, he got in this Twitter war with uh, the justice minister, the caretaker justice minister, Marie-Claude Najem, who uh, was appointed reportedly by the FPM to this position. She has been pushing for the fiscal audit to move forward. She has been saying that there is nothing wrong with the contract. Everything is perfectly legal. BDL, Riyadh Saleme, they are in the wrong, claiming that banking secrecy prevents them from complying with the audit, all of this stuff. Ibrahim Kanaan has been on the other side saying, no, the forensic audit cannot go forward right now because it would violate banking secrecy. And they got in this less than substantive, I think, Twitter war. Uh, but it was interesting to watch these two very high-level politicians, people who were sort of in the FPM camp, go at each other. And it was really kind of eye-popping. Ibrahim Kanaan questioned whether Marie-Claude Najem really was the Minister of Justice. Uh, he said, you know, you've, you've done absolutely nothing uh, in your time uh, as the minister. Marie-Claude Najem shot back, you know, oh, you, you're the head of the... Uh, uh, finance and budget collapse committee, uh, which <laughs> <laughs> I love that to be honest. That was one, my one of the funniest things this year. Isn't it in the Yardle Man? And she's completely right. I mean, just, just looking at the record of this uh, of this committee and what it has, it has done when it should have been doing things and when, you know, it acted up and created this... Uh, the truth uh, committee about you know uh, reconsidering the losses to sabotage the IMF negotiations. I mean, what is the record of Ibrahim Kanaan? It's really just in the last few months, at least, it's really just uh, fighting for whatever BDL and the banks need in Parliament. Yeah, exactly. This uh, this committee, if you remember, like the the IMF talks were going along, and then all of a sudden we had these committee meetings. What was it during the summer? where they came out and they said, oh, the, the numbers in the reform program by the Lebanese government are wrong. you know, uh, And it was really sort of an about face, uh, it seemed, for a lot of the political leadership in the country that had been sort of inching towards the forensic audit at the very least uh, and inching towards these reforms that would you know, bring uh, IMF assistance. And then all of a sudden, just, no, we're not going to go along with this. Yeah, that, that committee was a colossal mistake in retrospect. You like to see parliaments everywhere being involved in these kinds of things, but the way this committee operated and it's the ultimate, you know, putting aside what its original goal was, but the consequences of it are pretty catastrophic. I mean, we're starting from scratch now and we've just wasted a year. Right, right. But I, I want to get a little bit more into what the, the substance of what this fight is about because it it is kind of you know satisfying uh on, according to our sort of baser instincts to see uh, people fighting you know at a high level over this but there really wasn't a lot of substance yesterday when they were trading these accusations over twitter so i think we should take a look at this forensic audit and you know what it would be uh, what it's supposed to be, what its purpose would be, and then sort of the problems and what the fight is really about over this. Because if we don't have the forensic audit, we're not going to really be able to figure out what went wrong, at least not in a very specific uh, way or in a way that can lead to any sort of accountability. So it, if we back up a little bit, Mike, can you just sort of walk us through 
in general, what a forensic audit is? Sure. Just very generally, it's a kind of detailed examination of financial records. It's usually done when a crime is suspected, a financial crime. And so you dig deeper into the records more than a normal financial auditor would to discover if there was any fraud or embezzlement or any other type of crime. Now, the forensic audit that's proposed here is a little bit different because there is no specific crime that is being investigated, right? Usually if like, you know, you have some company collapse because it was misreporting something on its books, you suspect that there's a crime because you, you see the effects of it and you know where to, what, it, what, you're, what you know, suspect that crime is and then you investigate it specifically. Here, we kind of have this general idea that something went wrong, financial engineering was done and there's not much visibility as to what that was, who benefited from it, how much it was. The numbers aren't very clear. And so if you look at the scope for this forensic audit, it's very broad. It's actually pretty well written, in my opinion, because it, it, it gives the auditor the responsibility to cover a lot of different topics, um, so long, of course, as the client, which is Ministry of Finance, wants them to cover those topics. And we can get back to that uh, a little bit later. So what's this forensic audit doing? It's broken out into you know, basically two buckets. It's mainly going to look at financial transactions at BDL or accounts at BDL over the last five years, which is the period of the financial engineering. And typically, you know, you would go back five or 10 years. You know, you don't usually go back 30 years for something like this. You have to pick a time period and the last five years is, is, is fine. They're supposed to look at whether any financial transaction prices were inflated. Um, you know, was BDL buying or selling financial instruments at prices higher or lower than the market rate? Were payments made to fictitious companies or for improper purposes? And also just look at how BDL's assets, uh, like their reserves um, and their liabilities, like their borrowings from the banks, how they've changed and evolved over time. The idea behind it is you want to find out were any crimes committed, you know, clear crimes, embezzlement, uh, insider trading type things on, on financial instruments. But also you want to see how did BDL's assets change over these last five years when things really started falling apart? Because you need to understand what is exactly the cause of this crisis from the financial perspective. That information is needed because you can't build a financial rescue plan unless you know, okay, how much of the losses are from interest related to the financial engineering? How much was it for fixing the lira exchange rate? How much was it for financing the budget deficit. You need these very granular information so that you make sure you're building this, uh, this program um, as optimally as you can. Now, the second yeah, part of the audit is, is forward-looking. It's looking at internal control procedures at BDL, compliance. Are these controls enough to make sure that financial crimes and irregularities don't happen? How is BDL really being run and what changes do we need to make so that if something was being done improperly, that that wouldn't happen again in the future, which is a really important aspect of the work also. I mean, you need to make sure that this doesn't happen again, which is kind of stunning when you hear some politicians say, well, we don't really know what's the purpose of this, finan- of this forensic audit, so we don't need to do it, or we don't have time for it, or there's other pressing issues. What is more pressing than understanding exactly what happened, the details of it, making sure no crimes happened, 
and putting together in place a system at BDL where there's more than $50 billion of losses to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Yeah, yeah. So basically, it's uh, it's figuring out what went wrong, trying to figure out uh, who could have been responsible, and but also the processes and the procedures, right, that that BDL followed. How how were those wrong? Were they wrong? How were they wrong? And what needs to be put in place in the future in order to safeguard against this? Exactly. I mean, how were decisions being made in there? Why is it that it's not until 2019, basically, that the general public even learned about any of this? If yeah. decisions were being made improperly, um, why is that? Uh, what's the internal control process in BDL? Who has access to information? Uh, you know, this is important just from like a, I mean, we already know BDL is kind of a black box. They don't publish the same level of detailed information that most other central banks publish. I mean, to say that it's 2018 financial statements were leaked is just an incredible statement because in you know almost every other country these are published every year this should be leaked. <laughs> yeah so you know there's enough cause to say that this institution which is a public institution which should be accountable to everybody and where you know was a primary location where most of the losses materialized and you know even if the perspective is that well because you know you always run into this issue where people are like well, what about the government? What about the politicians? Why don't you do a forensic audit on the ministries? Uh, they're the ones responsible. Fine, that's all. I agree with all that. But in, in, very directly, the losses are kind of mechanically located in the central bank. So you have to dig in there to find out, you know, where does this, the arms of this octopus go? And that's not enough reason to not look at the central bank there's yeah. a lot of a lot of just bad actors in this country where you know people say well why are we doing a forensic audit on the central bank we should start with the ministries but these same people will probably tell you once the forensic audit on the central bank is dropped they'll be happy dropping any calls for an audit in the ministries as well right, right. everything is so intermingled together but you've got to start somewhere right yeah right. Just, you know, i just want to say that this you know this discourse is so weird to me it's like um you know, when Americans start saying, no, of course, I'm not going to vote for Joe Biden. He's going to, you know, uh, increase my taxes. And this person makes like $30,000 a year or something, you know, uh, like something that is well beyond what they make, the range of what they make. And uh, people act like they have interest in uh, in places where they don't really have interest. You know, I understand if you have a bank or if you have like bank shares um, and uh, or if you, I don't know, are connected to the interests of the bankers in a clear way or, or, or to Riyad Salemi, etc., that you would be making these arguments. But when you hear them from just people like you who are also screwed by the banks and by uh, the economic crisis, it's just really fascinating the, the polarization that can happen on things like this. Like, why would you refuse any kind of uh, forensic audit on the central bank when we all know after uh, these years that uh, it's been clear to everyone that the central bank did commit uh, many mistakes uh, and we're trying to find out if they were intentional or not and if there was fraud involved or not. It's just fascinating that people still, you know, defend these officials. Because, well, most people aren't informed enough on these issues and in influential groups here are so effective at communication. I mean, the fact that Probably most people in this country still think that the default on the Eurobond payment in March is what caused the crisis, tells you just how effective 
the misinformation campaigns are in this country. I mean, I was at a talk at a small elementary school in my hometown in Tripoli, and it's it's a poor community. And people there barely have bank accounts, maybe $5,000 at best. And they'll tell you, yeah, the government should give its assets to the banks to make up the losses because I want to get my deposit back. And I just tried to explain to them, like, this is not for you to get your deposit back. This is for people much richer than you to get their, you know, a larger chunk of their deposit backs backs at, at your expense. But, you know, you're constantly having to fact check and fight misinformation. And it just never goes away. You know, you might spend a year trying to fight a piece of misinformation and it just never goes away. Yeah, yeah. So what's going on here with the uh, forensic audit is that they're trying to get a, a bunch of information that you just described out of the central bank, figure out what went wrong, but something went terribly wrong. Uh, and that was BDL refused to comply uh, with the the majority of requests for information. And they were given a three-month extension that is le- legally dubious, but uh, a three-month extension nonetheless. But they're still claiming that they can't comply, uh, as far as I'm aware, because of banking secrecy. Yeah, I mean, Forbes Middle East leaked a database of questions that AM Alvarez and Marcel, the company doing the forensic audit, sent to BDL. And then the status of you know, information received and, and what was not received and why. And if we take a look at that, we kind of split the questions into two buckets. A segment of the questions have nothing to do with banking secrecy. I mean, if you look at the, the law, and, and I'm not a lawyer, but, you know, it's written in plain English. It basically says that there's really two laws here um, that are relevant. One is banking secrecy, and one is the code of money and credit, which applies to the central bank. Okay. And they both apply in, in this case to some extent. There's a, some disagreement, you know, in the kind of uh, legal community and financial community about them. We could talk about that. But basically what banking secrecy does is it prevents, I mean, I'll just summarize it very quickly. It prevents bank managers and employees of disclosing any information known to them about their clients' names, funds, or personal matters to any party be it an individual or a public authority. Um, And then there are some exceptions, like, uh, you know, if there was a crime committed or a lawsuit or things like this. The code of money and credit prevents managers and employees of the central bank from, um, it says that they're bound by the banking secrecy law that I just summarized. And it says this obligation covers all information and facts concerning not only the clients of the central bank and the banks and finance establishments, but also those establishments themselves, right? It's pretty, very broad language. I mean, think subject to a lot of interpretation. Um, and in Lebanon is not really a country of laws like, you know, we, we understand that phrase to mean. So everybody interprets things on their own and these questions never really get resolved. So this is kind of the area of disagreement now. To what extent can the central bank and managers and staff at the central bank provide information to Alvarez and Marcel and the Ministry of Finance without violating these provisions that, that I just summarized. Remember, BDL is not a party to the contract, to the forensic audit contract. So their cooperation is really voluntary. I don't see why they couldn't just say no to everything. We're, we don't, you know, we're not a party to this contract and we don't see a reason to comply. There's a, a reputational maybe, or a public kind of uh, pressure incentive, but I don't see why they couldn't just say no.
But putting that aside, their cooperation is voluntary. A&M will depend on them for the information. A forensic auditor typically will go into the institution and get the information themselves and interview staff and interview managers and do a forensic analysis of the servers, right? Because if you're the subject of an investigation, you can't also be the party that is voluntarily providing the information because what stops you from providing misleading information? There's no oversight on that. That's, in my opinion, the biggest fatal flaw of this, the way this whole thing was structured. This obviously couldn't be solved in the contract. This is just a structural problem that needs to be solved by legislation, I think. To I, I mean, BDL. if you look at, if you look at the, the larger picture, though, I mean, BDL is not a private entity. It, I, I, I don't know how this works out with like the actual legalities and technicalities of this, but BDL is under the state. It, it is a state operation, it is a public operation. It is bound to follow what the state says has to happen. And so it, it seems to me as though, you know, if the government empowers this firm to do a forensic audit and says, yeah, you need to do a forensic audit, I mean, certainly that implies some sort of requirement for BDL to cooperate in good faith. Well, you know, surprisingly, or not really surprisingly, because central banks are designed to have a level of independence from the state because there's a fear of the state having too much control over monetary policy. I mean, banking secrecy also protects client information from the state. The way that you would have to do this is by legislating it because supervision of the central bank is, you know, it's laid out in the code of money and credit. There's a whole section on how the central bank is supervised. So it's not enough for the cabinet to say central bank do this because central bank is an independent entity. But if you have legislation that mandates the central bank to do something, then it would have to do it. So that's, I think, the approach. But you know, but, the and, and that's, that's, that's taking one uh, one view of the law and what it says, because some people say, oh, no, well, the BDL is compelled to comply with this as is. Uh, and then the other side says, no, they're not, basically if I understand it right. Well, I think that the main disagreement now is how the existing law is interpreted in respect of whether BDL is able to answer these questions or not. I haven't really read a discussion about whether BDL's cooperation is voluntary or not. I think people are just assuming that BDL is cooperating and what legally can its level of cooperation be? So going back to the original question, we have a database of about 150 questions from A&M to BDL. And as I read it, I kind of categorized them in two buckets. Questions that have absolutely nothing to do with, with bank secrecy because they have nothing to do with client accounts at all. They ask questions about, you know, what is BDL's internal controls process, its internal audit process, things that are kind of very specifically related to BDL and how it manages itself. And BDL didn't respond to a lot of them saying code of money and credit. Not, not very convincing to me. But right. there are questions that are in this database and questions that I know will have to be asked in the future if you plan to do a proper forensic audit. Because if you want to know whether embezzlement and corruption and misuse of funds happened, you need to track those funds from BDL all the way to the final beneficiary, which could be an account abroad. If you only look at what's going on in BDL, that may not tell you what happened. You have to know how was this money ultimately used. Those questions, I can understand why banking secrecy would be an obstacle. Again, assuming that everybody's acting in good faith, and, and I don't think that's the case, but assuming that there are some questions that 
it seems reasonable to think based on the reading of, of the relevant laws that they could be an obstacle. Now, one part, uh, you know, one group of people, and that includes the Minister of Finance and the legislative, and I can't remember the name, consultation committee at the Ministry of Justice, who are, remember, they're the ones who signed off to this structure of the, of the forensic audit. So we have to keep that in mind when they're making these claims, it's also in a way defending what they did before. So they have an incentive not to admit that they made a mistake. Um, or maybe they don't believe they made a mistake, but I mean, this has been their position all along. Um, they say that, no, the banking secrecy and code of money and credit doesn't prevent BDL from responding to any questions that were asked because their perspective is that, well, they can just anonymize the names. So instead of saying Ben Red, they just say individual one. And that's enough to get around the, the banking secrecy laws. And, and as I understand it, this is how thing forensic audits are conducted in other jurisdictions as well that have some level of banking secrecy. Well, to, to really know that, we would need to compare how the laws are drafted there and how they're drafted in Lebanon. Because as I read the law here, it doesn't only say names. It says persons may not disclose client names, funds, or personal matters. And then for the central bank, it says the obligation covers all information and facts concerning clients and blah, blah, blah. So, so there could if, be legal the differences there, yeah, as well. Yeah, but if the perspective yeah. is that banking secrecy is not an obstacle to those questions that are relevant to banking secrecy, not the ones that BDL didn't answer that have nothing to do with banking secrecy, just, they just are not cooperating or they don't have the information to begin with and they don't want to say that then they need to make that legal case. It's not enough. The Minister of Justice doesn't interpret the law, right? That's the courts interpret the law. The Minister of Justice has a view on the law, and that's the government's view and interpretation of it. But it's not enough to just say, no, bank secrecy is not in, it doesn't obstruct this. You need to actually make the case to convince people, right? Same with yeah. BDL. If BDL is not answering questions, they need to tell you, why do you, why is it your position that you cannot respond to this question because of the code of money and credit. You can't just say it, code of money and credit, you know, or bank secrecy doesn't, doesn't affect anything. This is, this is a very low level conversation where you can't really get anywhere because nobody's actually making an argument. And, and even, you know, even the Beirut Bar Association, they put out statements, but they don't really explain how did they come to the conclusion that they did. And I wish the media would do a better job at kind of Putting them in the corner. If you, if this is your position, explain to me exactly why you think that is. And while you know, understanding what the law says, the wording of it, and how your position complements um, or works with what the law says on paper. Anyway, so those are the two positions now, and the three-month delay. You know, it, and to me, it's just because nothing's going to change in three months, right? Except where there's going to be a new government, and so they're just pushing. They're pushing it off to the next government to have to make a decision to either cooperate, which they likely won't, or to terminate the contract. I mean, because these are really the two options now. The contract, the contract really, it, it envisioned us reaching this point because what it says is there's going to come a point where A&M needs to decide whether it received enough information to its full satisfaction, at which time it takes what's called a commencement decision. And then it has 10 weeks to produce its preliminary forensic audit report. If it's not able to take a commencement decision, which clearly it hasn't been able to, then it has two options. It either terminates the contract 
and it gets $150,000 out of the $2.1 million, or it reaches an alternate understanding with the Ministry of Finance about how it can provide the services it committed to based on kind of what information it was able to gather, in which case the price might be renegotiated. So instead of making, you know, one of these decisions now, they just, you know, they agreed to delay it three months and let the next government sort it out so that nobody really takes the political blame for, um, unfortunately, the likely failure of this audit. Yeah, I mean, it, it that certainly seems to be what's going on. Uh, but but if, you know, these people like the, the Minister of Justice, so if they messed up, in the drafting of this contract or drafted the contract in such a way that this eventuality is the most likely one, you know, where A&M can't really take the commencement decision or, or can't move forward at, the, at that point. Why are they pushing so hard now for it? Is it, is it just that they're, they made a mistake and they're trying to cover things up or is there something else going on here? Well, first I, I just want to be very clear about something. The contract was not poorly drafted. The contract is actually pretty well drafted, in my opinion. The contract is not the problem. The problem is the laws in Lebanon, and not only the banking secrecy laws, which I still, until I hear a convincing legal argument as to how they're not an obstruction to this work, that's, mm-hmm. that's still my position. But the other problem with the laws is that BDL's cooperation is voluntary, Effectively, it is voluntary. BDL is the middleman for all information that's provided, which leaves so much room for bad information to be provided. These are the areas that I think are the main problem that that weren't focused on. The contract itself is, is in my opinion, fine. So then why is BDL fighting this so hard? Yeah, they maybe they don't. Uh, if, if your reading of the law is right, then maybe they don't have to comply at least on some of the things where they didn't reply on, where banking secrecy would apply. But they didn't reply on other things as well. And so what's going on here? Why are they why are they not doing this? And why do we see such a big focus on banking secrecy now and such a big focus on, oh no, we can't really do this audit? What is there something larger going on here? Well, I would be speculating, but you know, there's a few options. One is for some questions, there's a legitimate reason and it's banking secrecy. But the fact that they didn't answer tons of questions that have nothing to do with banking secrecy, and in many other ways, they're not cooperating, like and not providing workspaces for the A&M team. Institutions in Lebanon are run like corner shops. It's, it's personalities. When we talk about BDL, we're not talking about BDL as an institution. We're talking about basically Riyad Saleh and the people around him. Unfortunately, that's how it works here. And so there may be personal animosities, like why are you trying to pin the blame for this whole crisis on us when you're also responsible for it? Or from their perspective, you're mainly responsible for it. And they see that there's this attempt being made to use them as a scapegoat, like all of the problems are because of BDL. Because really nothing stops the government from doing a similar audit of uh, uh, the electricity company or the Ministry of Finance, they're not doing that. The focus has been on BDL. So there's personality clashes that happen. There's people not wanting to end up being blamed for something while others who are just as or more responsible get off scot-free. And what are are people's objectives in this? 
is the objective really to find out as it's being marketed that the forensic audit objective is to find out who stole the money you know if money was stolen what crimes what crimes were committed you know very broad mandate that people really want and and deserve or is it really we want to pin the blame on riyad salame and is that blinding certain parties from structuring this audit in a way to reach that ultimate goal that the public is being promised you know if you look at because for a while before the contract was signed there was a bit of back and forth between um the ministry of finance and um and the president's office um making some kind of uh, amendments to the contract and comments on the contract and if you look at the issues that were being focused on there were issues that were in my opinion uh, irrelevant they were focusing on things that don't really affect the nature of this audit or the way that it would be carried out and its effectiveness they focused on like a big deal was made about why does this contract say that the parties have to follow lebanese law this will subject it to banking secrecy and is a way to undermine it well i mean of course the parties have to follow lebanese law it's a lebanese contract yeah. and then, these are all lebanese parties you you can't obligate like the old crow contract there was a draft of it the the agent, the company that was supposed to do the forensic audit before that basically obligated the ministry of finance to break the law you can't do that so these changes to the contract were actually ones that made it better from the perspective of a contract that is enforceable and is doesn't force any of the parties to do things that they're not able to do they focused a lot on adding in the contract getting the support of a international organization called egmont group which is an organization of finan- of like pub- official financial investigators uh, investigation agencies but again it was not made clear firstly how does this agency even do they do this because i don't think anybody called them to ask if they do this kind of work and how even if they could how does this help us get around the banking secrecy problem and finally why do they why does their name even need to be mentioned in the contract what stops the government from going and asking this international agency for help they're not a party to the contract you don't need to put their name in there it doesn't you know it doesn't affect the ultimate objective and while doing all that and focusing on these things they completely ignored the fact that bdl's cooperation is voluntary you know you don't have an independent law enforcement agency overseeing this work that can take legal steps that has the credibility and trust of the public so that people don't think that this work is is politically motivated when they finally appointed the contract also says that they have to the ministry of finance has to appoint a committee of three people to oversee the work and the execution of it and they appointed three politicos you know everybody got their person in there people that have no experience in central banking or auditing or internal controls or or anything like that to do what is fundamentally a technical job of overseeing a technical work stream so every step of the way these kinds of mistakes were being made and finally when it blew up in a way that was totally predicted okay back in july when anm was first appointed it was predictable i mean um by you know by the nerds for example and and others where we said these are some of the obstacles that this uh work can face and these are the solutions that would need to be implemented for this work to be done properly transparently credibly and effectively and it's all the stuff that's being talked about now nothing is is new here and the fact that these points weren't addressed 
in the, you know, in the few months where this contract was being negotiated and this whole thing was being put together. And now everybody's coming out and trying to defend their positions. You know, it's questionable to me. It was, yeah. it was predictable. And what was the position before? How did, how, how did you think it was going to work out where a lot of blame is being put on BDL? It's a political arm that's doing a forensic audit on BDL to uncover potential crimes. And their cooperation is totally voluntary. What was the solution to all this? We have a problem in this country where there's no concept of kind of anticipating. We solve crises when they occur, and we don't anticipate them before they happen to try to resolve them beforehand. And that just leads to delays and ineffectiveness. So should the forensic audit just be dropped then? If you're saying, you know, like there are these political issues, there are these legal issues, uh, at least is the way you re- you read the law, maybe we should just drop it all and forget about it. Well, I do think that, I mean, my biggest fear was that A&M would basically do some subpar work, you know, just to get paid their contract fee. Maybe they would work out something with the Ministry of Finance to do something much lesser than what was committed to at first. And then, you know, the politicians would use that as, see, we did a forensic audit, everything's all good, let's move on now. That would have been the worst case scenario. They didn't do that. They ended up delaying it because nobody wants to make that decision. But I do think that, I mean, I really, really would hate to miss this opportunity that we have now to do something. So the question is, is a subpar forensic audit that might uncover something, might not, might give us some threads for the future, but that could be used by certain factions to undermine this whole cause of, you know, why you need a forensic audit. Is that better or is it better to drop it for another day? I I really don't know the answer to that. I mean, it's... I I mean, let's be real, though. If if the forensic audit is scrapped, there's not going to be another one. Yeah, that's most likely the case, you know, but you're also never, you're not going to have an effective forensic audit unless you have a side overseeing it and carrying it out that is not implicated in anything. Yeah, that, 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 I agree. That's that's really the main point in this whole discussion that, you know, uh, wherever you go in this conversation, you go get to a point where you need political change and changing, like, for different people in place to be able to do this thing, right? Be it in cabinet or be it in parliament or be it at the central bank. So fundamentally, it's about political change. And it's just, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about this as if we're talking, you know, two years ago, uh, uh, you know, talking about the possibilities of maybe this reform might happen and maybe not, who knows, etc. But we're in a very urgent situation after an economic crisis and fin- in the middle of an economic and financial crisis that is, you know, unprecedented in the country and after a popular uprising and everything, everything we've seen. And there's still, uh, you know, a question on whether a, a relatively a minor reform or action like a forensic audit specifically in the central bank is almost impossible to achieve without political change. So it's just it's, it's a sign of uh, what we need to do for, for much bigger changes to happen, changes that we all talk about and think we need. So basically, there are no purely technical solutions here. You have to get into the politics. There are going to be winners and losers. Yeah, I mean, if this forensic audit was to be effective and if that was the intention and to kind of do the work that was being advertised then we would have seen some things being done differently we would have seen the audit being legislated for uh in parliament to force bdl to cooperate with it and to cut it out as a middleman because 
the target of an investigation can't also be the party you're depending on to provide you information. You know, the laws on banking secrecy and the quota money and credit would have been suspended at the very least for this specific work stream that's being done. The work would have been overseen by an independent team, maybe a judicial team that is empowered to take the steps necessary to make sure this audit is being done effectively. And and what we saw was that really none of that was done. Every step of the way, mistakes were made. And we saw that the audit had, each side had an objective it wanted to get out of the audit. And that just caused this like confluence of just errors to be made and for us to reach the point that we're at now. I mean, fundamentally, this is an investigation that could lead to people being charged with crimes. And when you have basically, you know, many people, decision makers overseeing the audit and having to to cooperate with it, who are potentially implicated in those crimes, there's just no way you're going to be able to get what you think you're going to get out of this. So until you have some serious change in this country and the leadership of this country and the way this, this political system is set up, there's just no way you're going to be able to get a proper forensic audit. I mean, maybe the international pressure will, could potentially be effective. But what we're seeing now is that, you know, we're kind of backtracking now. We're not really making progress anymore. Yeah. And, and if you're talking about the need for the involvement of parliament, whether that is prior to this stage or, or where we're at right now, MPs aren't exactly independent from all of this as well. They are potentially connected to uh, people and entities that may have charges brought against them if a real forensic audit goes through, uh, and some of them themselves could be implicated as well, uh, uh, since uh, they are so connected uh, to the banking system, the financial system here. Uh, So trying to get uh, that cooperation out of parliament, I think, is also a very, very tough sell, regardless of whether you're talking about prior to, you know, this thing being set up or now. Yeah, exactly. The conflicts of interest are outrageous, and we don't even know the half of them because there's no disclosure requirements here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and and laying out just the complexities involved here and the interests involved here. I, I think that's all the time that we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, we will be back with you as soon as possible, probably not next week, but uh, as soon as we can. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And I'm Mike Azar. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.